Let's pray together, shall we? Wow, Lord, it's, uh, it's hard to even put into words what's going on in our hearts this morning as we're able to gather together and express corporately in the same room with one another the kind of praise that's been welling up within us for so long. And I, for one, am moved in my spirit just by being in the same room and feeling the same energy of those real believers who have been aching to express themselves in this kind of praise. Thank you for getting us through to this moment. We thank you for all the people who have diligently served behind the scenes, putting things together so that we could make this possible. I thank you for the patience that you've poured out on people because it's been a season that has tested all of our patience. And I pray now for your wisdom and guidance as we continue to make our way slowly but surely back into what will be our new normal as a body of believers, knowing that things can't get back to completely normal yet. For one thing, we have to be in a different space for a while. We might not have the same exact workers that we once had 16 plus months ago. But that's okay, because we know that you are guiding us in this phase of the return. And we ask that you would do that through your Holy Spirit, and that we would pour out our grace and love toward one another, so that everybody who looks in at us will see that we are believers, because they can tell how much we love one another. And for your word, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to uh, preach on something that I've actually preached before about a year and a half ago. Same exact title, but it's not the same sermon. It's the same title, but I've got a brand new approach to it today. And I want to show you something that you can have as an extracurricular resource for you. It is a podcast that a friend of mine and I started putting together in February because we recognized that at that time we still couldn't get into other people's homes very often and visit with people. And my friend that I knew way back in college in Phoenix, Arizona, when we were but lads, and then he also moved to Fort Worth, Texas at the same time I did. Uh, It was a seminary days there at Southwestern. And he and I had both felt on our hearts that we wanted to to do something to continue to share God's love and the gospel, but we felt constricted because of the pandemic. And so we said, well, we're Zooming together anyway. He and his wife, Dee, even though they live in Colorado, have been Zooming into our services regularly for months. And as he was saying, what's on your mind? Because I sense that you're up to something. And I said, yeah, I feel like I need to do something to share the gospel. He said, I've been feeling the same thing. So after about three Zoom conversations with one another, this podcast came to be. We're already in season two. And season one has 19 episodes in it. Season two is a lot of fun because we're exploring humor in the Bible. And there are some funny moments there, but every bit of humor in the Bible is purposeful because God creates everything for his purposes. And those humorous incidents that show up through these different uh, stories that are very truthful and honest and sometimes humorous point to some very 
poignant truths that we hope people will grasp. So, because this is actually one of our episodes, the same title as today, we've actually, this is like the guy that gets one term paper and he uses it for three different classes. Because it's the same title for the podcast, same title for the sermon a year and a half ago, same title for today, but all three have different elements because he entered uh, this particular episode with a lot of his own stories and illustrations and testimonies and some digging into some philosophical things that we get into in this particular podcast. So I recommend that not only so that you can become familiar with some of these questions that people are asking, but if you have people who are asking you questions, you can perhaps turn them on to a podcast to say, I know a guy. (laughs) I know two guys, Rick and Clark, and they can help answer some of these questions. And we also try to point people in the description of each podcast to other resources because we recognize we're not the end-all, be-all, and we want to point people to some very smart people because I'm not the smartest guy I've ever met. So there's the podcast for you. I hope you'll check it out. So I, as I mentioned, I preach the same message, but I'm taking a very different and very direct and practical approach to answering this question today. We're going to be looking at John chapter 14, 1 through 6. It should be, I think, to many of you, quite familiar, but we're going to look into that, and very practically, I'm going to give you an illustration to start things off. We would think rats. That's the name of this illustration. It was a very unusual experiment performed over four decades ago, as a matter of fact. A 1957 study, the same year in which some classics were born. This study was performed on a bunch of rats. They were Norwegian rats, hardy lot, those Norwegian rats. And it's strange but true, a scientist named Dr. Kurt Richter was curious to know how long these rats could keep swimming, this is the sad part, until they would drown. Now, we have to understand, this was 1957. Ethics have come a long way since then. This is considered sort of an infamous study now because it was a very cruel kind of study, but they were experimenting in some very unusual ways. So, setting aside the ethics of this, let me explain what happened. They had one group of rats that they would set into the water and they would start swimming, and the first group of completely wild rats, which they had captured out of the wild, only lasted, sadly, 15 minutes or less before they would die from drowning. Sad stuff. But they wanted to find out why another group was swimming quite a bit longer than that. They were domesticated rats, and they thought, what's the difference? So they did some experiments based on some assumptions that they thought might be the case, that if the domesticated rats had already had some interaction with somebody taking them out of their element, they started putting the wild rats in the water for a while, and then they would go in and grab them out of the water and take them to safety after a few minutes. And guess what they did next? Yeah, they put them back in the water. It's so cruel, I feel terrible even passing this along, but the payoff is great because what they learned is really incredible. But after they did that several times, rescuing them, letting them catch their breath, putting them back in again, then they put them in for the lengthy time to see how long could they go. Any, Any guesses as to how long you think they might have lasted after they had been rescued several times? Would you believe up to 60 hours? Two and a half days, not 60 minutes. Now, remember, the first batch was 15 minutes or less. 
Two and a half days. And they thought, okay, wow, that is significant. What made the difference? And they suspected that it might have had more to do with psychology than physiology. Makes sense. They think that once they had experienced a rescuer, then if they were put back in the water, they would start thinking, okay, the first time I swam around, somebody came in and got me. So if that has happened several times, they've been conditioned to think, somebody's coming back for me. So they kept swimming until finally somebody came back for them. And it kept them up. In other words, they developed hope. Wow. Incredible, isn't it? And aren't we glad that they've learned not to be so cruel in the kinds of experiments that they're doing nowadays? Well, let me recap their findings. Those who had no experience of rescue had no hope. Those who had experienced a rescuer had hope. Hopelessness is deadly. Now, we're going to look at this passage. If you have your Bible, I hope you do in whatever form you've brought it. Turn to John 14. We're going to look at this passage in the New Testament that shows us how we, if we are believers, have hope that lasts a lot longer than two and a half days even. And even though some people might look at this passage and say, well, this passage is exclusive and it means that Christianity is just too narrow, I'm going to give you several illustrations to show how I believe, once we understand what this passage is saying, we're going to say that Christianity is the antidote for our greatest problem, and therefore it's not exclusive but inclusive because God wants it for everybody. Jesus says these words in the upper room just a short time before he's arrested. He knows that his disciples are going to be swimming aimlessly around in this sea of doubt after he's arrested, and he thinks, I need to give them something to cling to that will give them hope, and so he shares these words. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. He's telling them that the rescuer is coming back for them. You know the way to the place where I'm going? And Thomas says to him, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answers, this is the famous phrase, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is offering this comforting word that he knew his disciples needed because they, he knew that they were going to be just heartstruck after he was arrested and crucified. He knew they were going to feel disoriented, like they were drowning in their grief. They were troubled, emotionally just wrecked. But he also knew that after he had seen them again, they would be bolstered in their spirits for a time, but then he was going to ascend to be with the Father which means that they were going to go through that all again. And there was going to be another season of doubt and longing and grief. Because that's the way we humans operate. (laughs) We'll feel great one day, and then all it takes is just one negative circumstance the very next day, and suddenly we're plummeting right back down there again with our emotions, because we're human. But he says, I'm going to come back for you, because I'm the way to the Father, and I'm the way. 
And this is the verse that becomes a sticking point to people who are skeptical about Christianity being too narrow. They say, they focus on the word the, instead of saying, no, he's the way. So they say, yeah, but he's the way, that's exclusive. Isn't that cruel? And that brings up the big question. But God doesn't look down from heaven and say, I'm going to pick that religion, and I'm going to call it Christianity. It wasn't willy-nilly that way. God was doing something purposeful by sending Jesus Christ, who had been prophesied all through the Old Testament. He was purposefully taking care of the biggest problem we had, which was sin. That's the key. That's why he sent his son. Christianity came about because of what God did to solve our biggest problem. So, it brings up the big question. This is the one that always gets raised by people after they start talking about this is Christianity too narrow question. What about those people? And it's a valid question. What about those people who were raised, let's say, on another continent with a bunch of people who have been worshiping very different gods and they haven't been exposed to Christianity? Isn't it cruel that God would condemn those people to a life everlasting apart from Him if they never were exposed to this good news, this gospel? Let me offer some examples, both from Scripture and from real life, contemporary examples, to show you how God actually answers the question for us. Acts chapter 10. Peter gets a visit from an angel. He's given very specific instructions. The angel says, Peter, there's this guy... And he is actually somebody who needs to know more about what he's learning about because he's seeking after me. He's a God seeker. And I need you to go and talk to this guy. So Peter sends, is, is sent by the angel to Cornelius. Now Cornelius is a Roman army captain. Roman, not Christian, not Jewish. They had the Greco-Roman world with all kinds of crazy things that they had as their belief system. So he wasn't raised in a Christian culture. Now, God didn't send Peter to go to Cornelius and knock on his door and walk in and say, Cornelius, God wanted me to tell you that it's okay if you believe in something, regardless of what that something is. As long as you believe in something, whatever it might be, that's okay. It's just as long as you believe, that's the important thing. That's not what God sent Peter to, to share with Cornelius. God sent Peter to share the gospel with Cornelius. God sent Peter to say, there is this guy named Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, and he died for our sins on a cross, was buried, he was there for three days, he rose again, and he is the answer to our problem. That's the gospel. That's what Peter was asked to go and share with Cornelius. And this is just one of several examples in the New Testament that show us why we shouldn't imagine that it's impossible for seekers to find God if they grew up in a different culture. God can take care of that, and he does. In fact, he is continuing to do that often. The Bible even tells us that no one can actually seek after God in their own strength. No one seeks after God. Paul said that, and he was quoting from an Old Testament passage. As the scriptures say, which is Paul saying, alluding to Psalm 14, no one is righteous. Not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God, meaning out of their own strength. And that's certainly true for people in America too, not just from people or another continent or from another nation where they have an unchristian background. When somebody does reach out and start becoming open to things of God, when they start reaching out for him, a seeker, if you want to call them that, no matter what culture they're in, you know why they're doing that? It's because God is making it happen. 
God is starting to reach in and pull them toward himself. That's what the Bible tells us. John 6.44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I use this illustration so many times because I just feel like in my own life, there have been times in my life that I've just felt that tug at my heart and I knew it was the Holy Spirit pulling. And he's relentless that way because he loves us that much. Paul reinforces this basic idea in Ephesians, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Again, so many other religions talk about if we do certain things, then we can ascend to this point and maybe we can get God's favor or this God's favor or do this or do that. But God says, no, this is all about His grace. He's the one who initiates it and He's the one who provides everything we need to be able to respond to it. So if someone starts to feel God drawing them, <coughs> excuse me, regardless of how much gospel light they have available to them at the time, regardless of whether they've grown up in a Christian culture or not, <clears throat> God is capable of sending somebody to share the good news with them. Acts chapter 8, another biblical example. God, again through an angel, sends this time Philip to an Ethiopian dude. He is the chief official in the treasury for the queen. And this guy's riding in a chariot, <clears throat> I, I kind of don't picture one of these war chariots. I can't imagine how he would be riding in a war chariot, reading a scroll. It'd be like... So I suspect that maybe it has more to do like those divans where the person could recline inside and they get it up on people's shoulders and they're carrying them along because he's reading this scroll and it happens to be from the book of Isaiah, which is talking about Jesus Christ coming into the future. He's on a desert road leading to Gaza, the Ethiopian is reading the scroll, and Philip gets the word and says, there's this guy over there, you need to go and get close to the chariot. How's this for specific orders? So Philip is running alongside, hey, how you doing? I'm Philip. What's going on? The guy says, I'm reading this scroll. He goes, oh really? That's cool, what's it from? Uh, I think it's from Isaiah. Oh, that's nice. Do you understand what you're reading? No. How can I understand if I have nobody to explain it? He goes, oh, well, that's a good point. He goes, can you explain it? Well, I'd be happy to. And so he hops up into the chariot with him, and he starts to explain exactly what he was reading. Isn't that something that God specifically could say to this guy, you need to go down this road, find that chariot. He's going to invite you in so that you can explain what he's been reading. Reminds me of the vacuum cleaner salesman that came to our apartment just before Joy and I left to go on tour with Didymi when we were freshly married. And Joy says, you said yes to a vacuum cleaner salesman? Just before we're supposed to pack everything up and move? I said, it's a free carpet cleaning, honey. <laughs> and so David Hepner comes in and he does his demonstration. He cleans a bunch of our carpet in the living room, which is really great. And he gives his spiel, and then I had to confess to him, we're moving in a couple of days. We don't even have a room for all the stuff. We're packing it up into three different people's attics. So we don't have room for a vacuum cleaner, much less the fact that we're broke. <clears throat> so we can't really afford a vacuum cleaner. So I'm sorry about that. I said, but would you mind if I shared something with you that I found really useful as well? And he goes, sure, I'd be happy to. He figured if they were willing to sit through my spiel, I should be willing to sit through their spiel as well. And I had just been taking 
a New Testament course in college at that time, and I was starting to talk about different things, including Saul, who was on the road to Damascus. And I said, have you ever read that? And he goes, strange, you should ask that. I have just been reading through the New Testament recently. He was a Jew. And I said, so you've never read the New Testament? No, the New Testament is really off limits for us. And I said, did you understand what you're reading? Does this sound familiar? <laughs> no, how can I know unless somebody explains it to me? I was there to explain it to David Hepner, and he knelt and accepted Jesus Christ on our living room floor that was freshly cleaned just before we moved. And I prayed for him, and I said, God, he's going to have second doubts, second thoughts about this experience, so I just pray that he's going to get some reinforcement. Guess who rang our doorbell the next day? It was David Hepner. He came back. He forgot one of his little appliances that goes with the vacuum. And I was able to say, are you having second thoughts about what you did yesterday? How did you know that? And I was able to reinforce for him and say, here are some passages that I would recommend that you read because they help reinforce that what happened is real and the Holy Spirit's continuing to guide you to have faith and to join with other believers who are going to help you along the journey because we need each other to do that. And I said, do you know anybody like that? Yes, I do. I know a guy. He'll be so excited to know what I've done. Well, go tell him about that today. <laughs> and he did that. So if we think that just because somebody didn't grow up in a Christian culture, they don't have access to it, that that's cruel, God has his ways. And he's still working them out today. I also told you this years ago. I'll do the capsulized version. This was an Adrian a guy that had lived not far from the church that Scott Winstead, the pastor you're going to hear next week, preaches in. And Eddie showed up at a work day at Saturday at our church, back when I was at the church in Adrian years ago. And I'd never met him before. He looks very Native American. He had his hair in a ponytail way down his back. And he came in and he says, Hello, I'm Eddie Redcloud. And I said, It's good to meet you, Eddie. Come in. What brought you here today? Do you know one of these guys in the work day? And he goes, No. I was driving down Occidental Highway, and I just felt something in my spirit telling me I should pull in here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's interesting. And I said, tell me a little bit about yourself. And he poured himself out. We sat in a pew in the sanctuary at that work day, and he says, I've been exploring things about Christianity because my son became a Christian, and he's telling me about this Jesus. And I didn't know anything about it, so I was out in my yard the other day, and I was asking Kankasha, which was his word for grandfather, which best I could understand meant the creator. And he says that I was saying, God, if there's some way that I can find out about this Jesus person, I would be interested in that. And I finished my seeker's prayer, and I started walking down to the market, which is down the street from my house, and I heard this, there was a rustling. And I wondered, where's that rustling sound coming from? It was some pages of paper in a bush that the wind had blown and gotten stuck in this thorny bush. And I got up close to it and saw that there were several pages that somebody had ripped out of a Bible. And I looked at one of them, and it was from John chapter 3. <laughs> and here's what he was reading. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I've met Eddie. He's telling me this, and I'm going, inside. I didn't say that outside, but inside, that's what I was feeling. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Eddie discovered that God is capable of revealing himself in some pretty remarkable ways. Jesus is the one to rescue us. He will come back and get us. That's the kind of news that can keep us swimming. <laughs> I also had a good chat with my pastor friend, John Babry. He's the pastor at the church where we were able to go and worship for a few times, Fellowship Baptist. And his family, some of them, live in Iran. And he said he's been hearing more and more of these stories of people who have been seeing visions of Jesus, some Iranians, and they don't know what the visions mean, but they, they are very compelling. And so they would go to a Christian friend or to a church and say, I had this vision, can you explain it to me? And people are coming to faith in Christ, right and left. And I got this from an Iranian, because he's that Swedo-Persian, remember, his, one side of his family is from Sweden and the other is from Persia or Iran, so he calls himself the Swedo-Persian. I got this firsthand from him, and he knows about some of these individuals. So that this, this is not folklore. This is really happening. Joy and I, three years ago, were in Israel. Our guide, Irit, I-R-I-T, had been raised in a Jewish background. She was told as a child, don't go into a Christian church. Those people who believe that the Messiah has already come, ooh, that's bad. If you go into a Christian church, you'll be struck dead. You will die if you do that. That's what she'd been taught. And we would think... Oh, well, that's terribly unfair that she could never find Christ then, right? Things got bad in her life. She wound up getting a divorce because she had contracted cancer and her husband didn't want to put up with the inconvenience of cancer. So her life had really gone into a tailspin. And she thought, well, what have I got to lose? I'm going to go to a Christian church. If God strikes me dead, I'll be done with the cancer and I'll be out of my misery and if I don't die, maybe I'll discover something. So she walks into the church. She looks around. She feels pretty good. People welcomed her. She did not die. And in fact, she found the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And she still worships in that Messianic congregation in Tel Aviv. And you know what her job is? She feels like it's part of her calling. She's a tour guide, so she helps people walk in the footsteps of the Messiah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So here's the deal. Anybody can be raised in a different culture, and God can still reach them. Joy and I attended a church in Toledo a few years ago. We met Rabbi Kurt. He's an interesting fellow. He's got the long locks on the side of his head. He had a vision that scared him nearly to death, he said. It was a few years ago, and he didn't know what to make of that vision either. And he'd been raised in this Jewish, sort of a secular Jewish culture. He didn't really say he was a religious Jew. He was just a secular Jew. But he had this vision of Jesus, so he went to this guy who happened to be a Christian and said, can you explain it to me? Very much like what we're reading about in the New Testament. And the guy explains it to him. So what's Kurt doing now? He's a Messianic rabbi, and he has a congregation where he's telling other people about the Messiah. God draws people to himself. So, if you were starving, if you were really hungry, and you came up to me and said, Clark, how do I solve my problem? I'm so hungry right now. What if I said, you know, I, I've heard that if you listen to soothing music, it can be really peaceful for you. It'll be really helpful. Or maybe some read some poetry. I have some good poetry. You should read some poetry. Do you think that's going to help solve your problem? 
Or maybe you should go for long, contemplative walks. I went for two a day during the pandemic, and it was really helpful for me. And you'd say, yeah, but I'm st- my stomach's growling. I- I'm really hungry. You're not really solving my problem. And what if I said, well, you're really asking me a question about something that there's only one solution to your problem. You need food. <laughs> your body has to have nutrition. You have to have enough uh, of the-, the elements that God put into our world the proteins and the minerals and the vitamins so that you don't die. So you need food. That's the answer to your problem. And what if you went, oh, that's so exclusive. You know, I I think that there should be many ways to solve my problem. Well, no, there's really just one way. You, You just need food. That's kind of it. Can you see what I'm talking about here? That we miss the gospel if we misunderstand that the reason for the gospel is because we have one problem that can only be solved one way. The problem is sin, and the problem is solved by Jesus. That's why the gospel is not an exclusive thing that we ought to shun and say there should be many ways to do this. No, there's only one way. And that's why Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me because he is the bread of life, and he who eats of this bread will always be satisfied. So what if your problem is sin? Jesus dying on the cross is your solution. Your problem is hunger. Solution is food. If your problem is sin, you need Jesus, quite frankly. It's not a cultural problem. If we don't understand that Jesus is the only way, then we don't really fully understand the gospel. I'm going to read that again. If we don't understand that Jesus is the only way, to the Father, then we don't really fully understand the gospel because our problem is sin. It's not culture. Jesus is the only solution for sin, and all these people that I've mentioned started seeking God because nothing else was taking care of their greatest problem. They were hungry for something that could not be filled any other way. They found that Jesus is the answer. Like Andre Crouch in that good old song that he wrote back in the 70s. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Everybody now. He is the answer. He's still the answer. Even after 1970s, Jesus continues to be the answer. Here's another example. This is a neat guy. He's in heaven as of just a week and a half ago. Joy and I attended his memorial service just this last Tuesday. His name is Tom Cunningham. It's a picture of the exact kind of helicopter Tom flew, but that's not actually Tom in the picture because I didn't have any pictures from him. Tom is an amazing guy. And I learned some things about Tom in his story at this memorial service that just flabbergasted me because I didn't know what kind of childhood he had. He did not, by any stretch of the imagination, grow up in a Christian culture. In fact, if you could imagine some of the worst-case scenarios about a child entering the world, you'd have Tom's early childhood. Difficult circumstances. But while serving in the infantry in the Korean War, he and four other guys volunteered for a rescue mission. And it was kind of like Hacksaw Ridge, if you've seen that movie. They just kept going to the front lines under fire and dragging wounded soldiers back to the rear lines so that they could get the kind of medical treatment they needed. And they kept doing it again and again. It was not just a one-and-done deal. So he got a commendation for that with a V for valor. 
But that wasn't all in his career. He also got some shrapnel because they were under fire from mortar shells, and he was trying to roll out of the way and got a little shrapnel wound, and so he's got a purple heart for that. But when he came back to the States, he didn't say, man, I'm out of here, I'm done. He said, no, I want to learn to do something else. So he became a pilot. He got his pilot's license, and he went back, this time to Vietnam, and flew a helicopter. So not only did he rescue people on the front lines by hand, but then he rescued some more people with a helicopter. That was Tom. Somebody asked him, why would you do those things? He said, well, it just felt like the right thing to do. That was his character. How did he develop that kind of character? Because somewhere, even though he was in a very difficult childhood, he was exposed to the gospel. And he found out that Jesus is the answer to his greatest problem, which is sin, and that he would be filled up by Jesus so that he would never have to worry about sin again, and he could be transformed to become like Jesus. And he was one of the most Christ-like guys you'd ever meet. He always met you with a smile. He told so many people that he loved them throughout the, their lifetime. 91 wonderful years. Married to his wife for 69 years. Incredible guy. So here's the thing. He didn't do that by pulling himself up by his moral bootstraps. He did that because he met Jesus. And Jesus made the difference. He became an example of a transformed life because of Jesus. Here's the main point. I keep coming back to it because I want you to get it. It's so fundamental. Our main problem is not culture. It's sin. Sin, that self-centered rebellion toward God, keeps us separated from Him. That's what keeps people out of heaven. Tom dealt with the sin problem by accepting the solution accepted Jesus. So is Christianity too narrow? Is it too exclusive by claiming that Jesus is the only way? Not if we understand that Jesus is the only solution to our greatest problem, sin. Not if we understand that even if someone hasn't been raised in a Christian culture, God still is quite capable of revealing himself and drawing them into a relationship as we've seen abundantly expressed both in scripture and from real life examples. Now, if we understand that even someone who hasn't been raised in a Christian culture, God is still very capable of drawing them, then no, Christianity is not too narrow. Not if we understand that the gospel of Jesus is inclusive rather than exclusive. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will be saved. That's inclusive. Whoever. Today, just like it was in the first century, there are some who will hear this same basic message and they still can't quite bring themselves to say, I accept that. I trust that Jesus is the way. Back in the middle of the pandemic, I started sensing a shift in what I wanted to preach and how I wanted to preach. And I thought, God, if COVID's going to take me home, I'll be the better for it, but I want to go out preaching. And I want to go out preaching the gospel. And I want it to be so simple and so clear that a five-year-old can grasp it and a 95-year-old can grasp it. And this is the gospel, folks. Jesus is the answer. So you can reject it. That's your right. But i got to tell you, man, I hope you'll accept it. Because that's freedom. 
That's being filled up with the bread of life. Let me give you a peek at God's heart, and then I'll close us with some prayer. It is God who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Millions of people around the globe are Christ followers. There are many people in countries that are very opposed to Christianity. That seems to be when Christianity flourishes. Because they get it. They understand that Jesus is the answer to their biggest problem. The biggest problem is not going to be solved by a political ideology or any politician. Our biggest problem can only be solved by Jesus Christ. And Christianity transcends culture and language. So that's the gospel truth, plain and simple. Everybody has a sin problem. That's the problem that keeps us from Jesus and keeps us from heaven. But everyone, everyone has access to the antidote for sin because it's made available to every one of us. Everyone has a choice. And I have to ask, what do you choose? Let's pray. Father, my heart has, has just ached in the last 16 months over some of the things that we see demonstrated all around us in this world. And there are some people who are just treading water and some who feel like they're drowning. We've had people who, unfortunately, in this world of ours, have taken their own lives because they were hopeless. And I have wanted to preach a strong, simple word of encouragement centered around the basic, life-transforming good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is the gospel of good news. That's what saves us. That knowledge of what you did for us. Not because we can make it happen, because of what you did for us. And I pray that if there's anybody listening right now who hasn't made that step, that they will just surrender to you. They'll let go, open their heart and say, I trust you, Jesus. I trust that you are the way and the truth and the life. I know you're not a liar. You've never indicated anything that would cause me to think of you as a liar. And so if you said that, I believe it's the truth. And I accept you. And I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to be the living bread and I thank you for your forgiveness and for coming into my life by your Holy Spirit who will continue to guide me knowing that you who are beginning that good work in me will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.